Good day to you, and welcome to the podcast for the Union Street Meeting House. In this podcast, we will be sharing messages from our weekly worship services. Union Street Meeting House is a Christian ministry that introduces people of all ages to Jesus Christ and recalls those who once knew Him back into an intimate, vibrant, living relationship with Him. We are a house for Christian fellowship and personal growth. You are always welcome here at Union Street Meeting House. Let's go into this week's message right now. Amen, amen. Well, it's good to see everyone. So listen, this morning we have Easter coming up. We have Palm Sunday next Sunday and we have Easter the following Sunday. And um, praying about that and felt like the Lord really ministered to me, especially for Easter Sunday, we encourage you to come and uh, show me some things about the tomb that I had never seen before. So I'm looking forward to sharing that. But this morning, I want us to look back a little bit, okay? So open your Bibles this morning to a very familiar verse, and uh, it's John 3.16. We all know this verse well, and it's pretty much a staple in the Christian walk, but sometimes we forget what Jesus continues to say afterwards. So this morning, I would like to read John 3, 16 through 21 with you this morning. If you have your Bibles turned there, we'll give you a moment. Amen. It's good to have the word, but if you don't, I love to read it. And sometimes people receive when they hear. Sometimes they read. Sometimes they do both. So John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Now I want to stop there at 17 just for a second because the church is good at verse 16, but the church doesn't always see verse 17. And, and the world, frankly, a lot of the world knows John 3.16, but they don't know 3.17. And they have this sense sometimes that, that Christ came and did this work and somehow they're judged for it. But let's see what Jesus himself said. Verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Can you testify that's going on in our world? In verse 20, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Turn with me to Isaiah 50, please. Isaiah chapter 50. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You know, most of us, our spouses love us, and they know a lot about us, but they don't know everything about us, just the way it is. They know a lot, but they don't always know everything. But God knows everything and still loves us. Don't you find that crazy? That's love. Amen? Amen. Isaiah 50, let's look at verses 6 and 7. It says, I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. 
I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. And here's the scripture I want us to rest on this morning. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. And flint, if you don't know, is an extremely hard rock. It, it typically has very jagged edges. It's, it has a firm front to it. If you ever fell into a, a, a rock of flint, you would likely get hurt because it's, it's pointed, it's directed, it's, it's extremely hard. And Jesus says, I set my face like flint. Now this is a prophecy about him. But this is God speaking, make no mistake, because at this point he's still in heaven. And he's the Godhead speaking to Isaiah here. And I know that I will not be ashamed Turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Verse 51. I'm looking at my Bible. I see stuff underlined and circled. And I got chuckled here because it distracts me. I'm turning to the page I think I ought to go to. But I see that line and I'm like a squirrel and I just go there. And um, Pastor Carl says, listen, if you have a Bible that you don't want to write in, that's okay. Put it on the shelf and get one that you can write in. And so I see these notes in here. So, but we want this morning Luke 51 through 56. And it says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I love it. You got you to gotta respect their faith in that scripture, though. They know this is God. They don't know it yet and they don't understand it yet, but they're already seeing what he's doing and what he's done and the healings and the things that he's done and they're excited about it. I would love for us to be this excited. But Jesus turned to them and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to what? But to save them. And they went on to another village in fact, one version says he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Isaiah says he set his face like flint. He, he made a determination. He was resolute. He was resolved that this is what he was going to do. Nothing would stop him. You know, I even thought about even, even Herod as a baby tries to kill him. God protects him because he has a mission. He has a ministry. He is doing something. He is about his father's business. When he's 12 years old, he tells his parents, don't you know that I'm about my father's business? And now we're seeing him. And he resolutely sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Let's pray this morning. Father God, we love your word. We love the, the fact that you speak to us through it. This morning, God, I pray that you speak to our hearts and our minds that you encourage us, that you help us to run this race, that you give us the stamina to do so, give us the strength. 
Lord, we cry out to you this morning for wisdom and understanding. And Lord, this, this word at time can be heavy. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that can talk to us and teach us your way. Holy Spirit, fill this room this morning that every believer here would hear from you and know what you're saying. And that we would be ministered to by the actual word of God and actually our God ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. So in a few weeks, I said Easter will be upon us. So today I want to talk about the resolve that Jesus has as he's making his way to the cross. How he was determined to fulfill the mission that he was slated to perform from the foundations of the earth. Many of us have been churched for years and certainly we understand Easter. But this morning I want to re-examine a few things. And first I believe... Uh, uh, there is good in memorializing or celebrating important events as it serves to solidify in our minds the event and or the significant of that event. God himself does this with the children of Israel when he says, I want you to celebrate this feast and that feast. And I want you to have this anniversary and this celebration. And we love it when our children have birthdays and we celebrate that. It's, it's an event. It's something. It's a milestone. It's something that's happened or happening. And if you're married and your anniversary and however many you've had, and some of you have had quite a few, don't take it lightly. It's an opportunity for us. And secondly, this morning, if we look back, it allows us to better yet... Uh, and better yet, it doesn't really allow us, it affords us the opportunity to look at the said event so that we may learn something new about it or perhaps see it from a different angle or perspective. We know this, uh, I know this, uh, my doctrine has changed through time. Can I share with you that I don't have all this just right yet and it's probably going to change as I grow? And I ask for your grace in that, but you need to recognize that too. I see people sometimes fight over their, their doctrine and then change it two years later. How about that? And I love it that I used to be that guy some, and I would fight over that doctrine. And the Lord said to me clearly, don't you think I can handle my bride? Why don't you let me do this, Tim? I said, I like that. But, you know, things change when we mature and we grow and we read the word and what we thought maybe we heard or maybe we heard something when we were little, even from our parents. Like, like people will confuse things now when a proverb, when it was Ben Franklin and they try to say it was the Bible. But you learn, you grow, and you do new things. So this morning I want us to look back a little bit and see these reasons and understand them. And certainly I don't have all these answers. I love it when Paul talks about... He doesn't boast about it, but he was a super apostle. We've been in Corinthians, and he is even being facetious when he says that because he's being accused of not being a super apostle. But make no mistake, I'm no super apostle. Much to learn. I'm grateful you're here this morning. I want to learn together with you. But things change over time. You might need a new perspective or a new angle at looking at things. So today, I want us to look at why. Our Savior set his face toward Jerusalem. And many of you know this, but some of you don't. Some of you have been churched a long time and still can't put the pieces together. And I can say this morning that I don't have all the pieces together. That's why I love coming to the orchard to hear Pastor Bill or Pastor Carl. They pretty much are getting the pieces together. 
Somebody say amen. amen. Not going to offend me. Turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. As we read this chapter, and I know you've read it numerous times, I know you've studied it numerous times, but this morning I want you to focus basically on two specific things, and they are sin or disobedience and death as we read it. We're going to read 1 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in that day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight for her eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit, and she ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves some loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife themselves hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. And then God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? I want to stop there. When God's asking you where you are, it isn't because he doesn't know. It's because he knows that you don't know where you are. Let that sink in just for a minute. When he's asking them, where are you? He knows where they are. He's basically saying, where are you? Where's your heart? What have you done? What is this about? Why have you done this? God sometimes is asking you, where are you? Where are you right now? What are you doing? Not because he doesn't know. He wants you to understand. Verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Again, he knows the answer. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave from me the tree and I ate. I want to stop there. Men, Adam, where were you? Men, you're the protectors of your family. You're the protectors of your wives. Where are you? Where's Adam when the serpent came? Where is he? Just rhetorical this morning, but think about it. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Very important scripture. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Some of you can testify. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
Then Adam, to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, the Trinity, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he has taken. So he drove the man out at the east of the garden of Eden. And he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Look back at verse 3. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now in the Hebrew that is translated, dying you will die. And we have come to know that this death is a spiritual death. But we also know that it's going to be a physical death. Because what does he say in verse 19? By the sweat of your face you will eat the bread till you return to the ground. In other words, God created man. And we see in Genesis, in fact, let's look at Genesis 2.7. Just back up a page there to Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being or a living soul. There was already a physical body there. He, there was nostrils. He breathed into his nostrils. He put the Spirit of God in him. He put life. That's life. That's life. We're walking around in bodies. We have a life. We understand that. But if you're a Christian, you understand that's not life. A lot of people are walking around dead. Did you hear me? Life is when God breathes into you. And he breathes into his nostrils at this point. Look at chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. What does it say? Chapter 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat from it you will surely die. God is not a liar. They died that day. Now look at, look at chapter 3, verse 21. Most theologians would say that this was the first sacrifice ever made, and, and I tend to believe that. I also want you to know, and I'm not trying to put doubt in your mind, but you need to know that. This is what the Scripture says. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. It's not super descriptive there exactly what he did. But most theologians would believe that this was the first sacrifice of blood that was made for the benefit of Adam and Eve so that their sin would be covered. 
We see here in Genesis 3, we have sin or disobedience, if you want to call it that, but it's sin. And we have death or the separation from God because technically death means separated from. When someone dies, they're separated from us now. When, when they died in the garden, they were separated from God. He was still there, they were still there, but they were now separated. And this is critical. We have death, the separation of God, which is accounted as death, and we see God's provision here for sacrifice. We actually see the first death in the Bible when he takes the animals and makes skins. This sacrifice of skin or clothing, if you will, for Adam and Eve is accomplished by the shedding of blood. It's a metaphor for their spiritual death and a foreshadowing of things to come. Now we have an impasse here now. Because now we have a holy God who is a loving God who wants fellowship with his family, but his family through Adam has sinned and brought death or separation from God. Now, if you're in a family, and for whatever reason, you're separated from one of your youngins, it's a difficult thing. God is at an impasse. He is holy. So we live in a culture, well, if you back up probably in, in the early 1900s and even in the holiness movement and things were moving forward and probably to the 50s, you know, there was a message preach of hell and damnation was very common in churches and probably here, pretty substantial. And then we have this, we have this time of grace that moves in. And that's a wonderful thing because, the, as Pastor Carl said la last night, that from the fullness of God, we have grace upon grace. But the church then began to move into what we call a hyper-grace. And if you look around now, you see the results of that because what you see is you see the church and it doesn't look much different than the world. And we see hyper-grace at work and it's like, yeah, I can do all these things. And, and we're... Sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, so we're good. And we let that seep in a little bit too much sometimes. And then we forget that God is a just God also. He is just. He has to be to make this way for us. He has to be love and justice. So we have an impasse. We have a, a, a loving God who wants to fellowship with his family, but, but the family has actually brought death now. So for the sake of time and fast forward, we see that God then calls a nation to himself through the seed of Abraham and only there is still a monumental problem. And when he calls them out and he brings them out of the exodus and he's making them his, and he has an insatiable desire to be with you, he has an insatiable desire to be with his family. I said it Friday night. I've said it before. I heard a fellow say, the reward for not killing your children when they're growing up is grandchildren. <laughs> it's the most beautiful thing in the world. I can't explain it. I remember when my first one came and a buddy of mine said, I don't understand. I said, what? He said, man, you start talking about your grandson and, and you just light all up. 
I said, I can't explain it. I love them. God has an insatiable desire to be with you. He loves you. He desires to reconcile his family. And he cannot do so because he is just until there's a sacrifice of blood for the sin of man. So God institutes a temporary system of sacrifice so that his people can stand before a holy God and once again commune with him and have fellowship. And we know all about that. In fact, um, that's a whole other teaching. I think one of the best folks I've ever heard teach on it is Pastor Bill. And uh, so I'm not going to get into to it today, but I know we've been talking about maybe at the orchard he's going to do a study on teaching of the uh, tabernacle and sacrifice and what that's all about. And so that's for another day. But you're in church. You've been in church. You know about sacrifice. For today, I want you to understand why Jesus had to go to the cross. Remember the passage we read from Luke 9. It said, He resolutely set His face to go to Jerusalem. Our Savior from eternity resolved to save His people and nothing could or would stop Him from accomplishing His purpose. From eternity, Jesus saw that we would fall from our first estate so that he entered into a covenant to redeem us. See, we're a redeemed people. We were lost, but we're found. We were, we were the other guys, but he bought us. He redeemed us. Christ was always anticipating the time when he should actually assume human nature and fulfill his covenant engagement. And at last, the appointed hour had come and he was born of a virgin. And we know that he was born of a virgin so that he could break the bloodline of Adam so that the curse would stop and not be in him. And if you don't understand that, let me explain it quickly to you. When Adam sinned, and Pastor Bill shared this at the orchard a few weeks ago. A lot of people get offended because he says, hey, child, children are born with a sin nature. Oh, no, they're not. They're perfect. They're fine. No, they're not. If you raise kids, you know better. They're born with a sin nature. They're, they're born under the curse, as we say. They have to be delivered from the curse. Foolishness runs deep in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. That wasn't in my notes. I just threw that in. But seriously, they need a redeemer. We need a redeemer. So God has to fulfill that by having Christ come in a virgin who didn't have the Father's bloodline in it anymore and had a direct line of God's bloodline in it. He's born in a manger in a very humble estate. We talk about this. If we were God, we wouldn't do it that way, man. We would fly in on some F-14 Hornets and we would land somewhere and we would jump out with all our armor on and say, I'm the king and I'm here and I'm taking over. Not going so well for Putin right now, is it? God's not like that. He came to a humble estate for us in a manger. He worked in his earthly father's workshop. I love that. 
He left his heavenly estate to take on human flesh so that we may, that he may redeem all of mankind back to himself. And now that time had come. So we have Palm Sunday coming and we have Easter coming. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. Luke 13, says this, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Turn with me to Luke 18. Luke 18. Hallelujah. Luke 18, verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and he will be spit upon. Sound familiar from Isaiah? And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. And I would like to share with you this morning, (laughs) I heard Leonard Ravenhill say, I don't know who's dumber, the disciples or us. And, And I think about that because they didn't have everything that we have. They didn't have... First of all, they didn't have the Holy Spirit to guide them. We do. And we're still dumb. We still don't understand. Sorry, did I call you dumb? Uh, I am the most dumb, okay? And the disciples just don't know. The disciples, it says they understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Turn over a page to Luke 19, verse 28. Luke 19 and 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. He's going up to Jerusalem. Jesus has set his face like flint to accomplish the mission that he is called to do for our salvation and our redemption. Turn to Matthew 16. Chase you around just a little bit more, guys. Hang in here. Matthew 16. How many of you love the Word of God? I don't think you heard me. How many of you love the Word of God? Amen. Amen. Matthew 16, we're going to start in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one, That he was the Christ. Verse 21. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. When Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness and he comes out, he rebukes Satan the same way. He basically says, I'm not having it. Get behind me. And here he is to finish his mission. And Peter, who loves him, I'm sure if we were there, we would love him and say, this is the king coming. I'm not going to let anybody kill my king because after all, with everything I've seen you do, you're going to take over. You're going to be the Messiah and everything's going to be perfect. And these Romans, they're gone. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. Get behind me. I have a purpose. I have a mission. I have set my face like flint. I love that it says from that time, or I love maybe your version says from that time on. It wasn't just a single statement. Look what the word says. From that time, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples. He began to tell them. And he tells them, and he tells them, and he shows them, and he shows them, and they still don't get it. God tells you and tells you and tells me, and shows me, and shows me, and I still don't get it. It's crazy. Don't understand it. But he has a mission. He has set his face like flint. We see that Peter struggles with this, and he cannot handle it. And sure, in today, in the light of history, we have an understanding of what Jesus is saying because we have the scriptures that teach us exactly what happened. But why is it we still struggle believing? And we certainly have a world that struggles believing. And we now see that Peter and the disciples, they want Jesus to live. Satan and all his cohorts, the elders, can you imagine? The elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And even all the bystanders who are going to shout, crucify him, they want him dead. And here's the catch. They'll all get their way. Look at Matthew 17, verse 22. Matthew 17, verse 22. And while they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. Isn't that glorious? But they were deeply grieved because they still didn't understand. They will kill him, but he will be raised on the third day. Once and for all, a sacrifice will be made that will destroy what was birthed in Genesis 3. Sin and death. Revelation 1.18, Jesus speaks these words. He says, I am the living one. And I was dead... And behold, I am alive forevermore. 
And I have the keys of death and Hades. He is alive forevermore. Say forevermore. forevermore. Hallelujah. Once and for all, an offering will be made that will reconcile sinner man to a holy God. A, an offering will be made to reconcile us. And all because why? Because Jesus was resolute and he was determined and he set his face like flint. And several weeks ago we talked about how he, quote, died in the garden because he had to die to self. And he physically died on the cross. And how that's an example for us to die to ourselves so that we can live. This is bizarre. I want to die so I can live. And that was Jesus' message. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He made Him, meaning God made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we become the righteousness of God. It's what we call the great transfer. It's the great transfer. He becomes sin, not sins with an S. He becomes the sin nature of all mankind. And here's what people don't understand. When he dies on the cross, he takes care of sin for everyone, whether they believe or not. He's taken care of it. Whether they receive it is another story. But it's done, and it is finished. And Jesus goes to the cross to take on the sin of the world now, now. The fall in chapter 3, sin is dealt with. Sin is done. He's taken it to the cross. It is finished. That isn't where it ends. Jesus is resurrected on the third day. Now, there's life. He's dealt with death. He's rectified it. He's rectified sin. He's rectified death. He has given eternal life. And now there is life. Into the grave for sin and out of the grave for eternal life. The cross, through the cross, into the grave to deal with sin. But it doesn't end there. He comes out of the grave to give us eternal life. Charles Spurgeon says this, and I love this. I want to read this to you. This is from one of his sermons. Oh, you redeemed ones, on whose behalf this strong resolve was made, you who have been bought by the precious blood of this steadfast, Resolute Redeemer, come and think a while of Him that your hearts may burn within you and that your faces may be set like flints to live and die for Him who lived and died for you. Remember in Genesis chapter 3 where it says in verses 22 and 24, let me read it to you again. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life, say tree of life, and he may eat of it and live forever. Now, I don't fully understand why that went down like that? I'm not going to pretend I know. We'll ask God when we get there if we even care at that point. But they ate of one tree. They hadn't eaten of the other tree. And he stops them from eating of the other tree. Now personally, and this is I, not the Lord, okay? Personally, I think he stops them from eating the other tree because they're now unholy. They're now full of sin. 
They have now wrecked themselves, if you may. And he says, you can't do it now. Verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent out from the, from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground for which he was taken, sent man out. And so he drove the man out, and out of the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. But that's not where our story ends. Let's see where our Lord and Savior and what he has to say about it. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And may I say to you this morning, if God is stirring your heart that you need to rededicate to Him, then please don't leave this place until you've prayed about it with us or without us. doesn't matter. Between you and the Lord. If you do not know God as your personal Savior and you've never made that commitment to Christ, don't leave today without doing that. Revelation chapter 2. And verse 7. Thank you, Jesus. Let me catch up with you guys. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Turn to chapter 22, Revelation 22. We'll close here this morning. What a glorious day, amen? Verse 22. And this is John who's come before him. Now when he first sees him, the scriptures say he fell as a dead man. I think that's how we're going to be when we see the Lord. And so here we see again in verse 22, verse 1. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and on the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light or a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angels angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Verse 7, and behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that, for I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. And then he says, worship God. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong and the one who is filthy still be filthy and the one who is righteous still practice righteousness and the one who is holy, let him keep himself holy. 
Jesus says these words, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. And may enter the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the word of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things say, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning, Lord. We thank you for this understanding of why you sent your son and why you had to. And Lord, in the next few weeks, we're going to see this journey to the cross and to the resurrection. God, we ask that you open our eyes and show us things that we've never seen before. That you speak to our hearts and you minister to us, Lord God, that we would be faithful Believe on you. Not just believe in you, but believe you. God, we're grateful for this fulfillment of the scriptures. We're grateful for this fulfillment of the covenant that you made to have fellowship with your people. Lord, we know that you love us. We know that you desire to be with us. And God, we're grateful that you made a way that Jesus destroyed sin at the, at the cross and he destroyed all death at the resurrection. And Lord, we walk in that this morning because we're your chosen priesthood. We're your chosen people. We choose to serve you, Lord God. We love you and praise you and we give you glory. Father, help us this morning to process these scriptures, these words of life that you have given us. Help us to understand and teach our children and our children's children, Lord God. And that you may save this nation yet, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things. And all God's people said, amen and amen, amen. Well, you're blessed. Bless you. Have a great week. Thank you so much for joining us for today's message. You know, we would love to invite you to come and visit us in person sometime. If you're ever in our area, you can find us at 415 Union Street, in Milton, Delaware, where we have prayer and worship services on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m., Bible study on Saturday evenings at 7 p.m., and a Sunday morning worship service at 10.30 a.m. We would love to minister to your children as well. We offer children's church during the adult service. Children are excused to go back to their classes right after the worship time. You can also find more information about us on the web at unionstreetmeetinghouse.org or on Facebook 
at Union Street Meeting House. So we look forward to sharing the message with you next week. Hope you'll return to this podcast. Thank you so much and God bless you.